I have an admission before we jump into today's service, or today's sermon. I, uh, I love Christmas villages. Like, so every time I see that and I see the old school stuff, like, so we have a Christmas village in our house. It actually took some twisting of my wife's arm. Uh, if you go and see it in our house, it's like, it's, it's got a prominent place in our living room. And uh, she didn't necessarily want it to have a prominent place in our living room, but I love it. Um, is there anybody else in the room today? Just show hands really, really quickly. That you guys love, like, the nostalgia pieces of Christmas. Like, looking back at the, exactly, right? It gives you the warm fuzzies on the inside. It's an amazing, amazing deal. Anyways, enough of that. Good morning. Can I get a good morning back from you today? Yeah, it's a good morning. It's a good day to be alive. It's a good day to be in church. If we haven't met before, my name is Tyler. I get to be the pastor here at Anastasis, and I love what we get to do. Thank you guys so much for taking an hour out of your weekend to spend it here with us, to worship God together. If it's your first time with us, I hope you feel welcome. I hope you feel valued. I hope you know that you're loved by us and by a God who created this universe and created you uniquely. And we're excited for today. Last week, I asked you all to hold me accountable on something. And that was, if I change the light switch around, I want to let you know something. I did it. Yeah, I got it done. Yeah. Thank you. I know it was a big deal, right? Um, so it was one of those deals that I don't know why it took so long, but it did. And so Hannah's listening back because she's in our kids' uh, our kids' rooms, and she's listening back to our sermon this last week, and she goes, you're going to get that switch done now, aren't you? And I was like, I am. And she's like, it took you telling the church. And I was like, well, you know, I love you. You know, I really do. I promise. And so anyways, we got it done, and it was really, really good. And this last week, also, my wife and I got to spend a couple of days away just by ourselves, a couple of nights uh, on a small getaway. And before we left, something was really interesting. We had to sit our daughter down and explain it. So we've never left both of our children at once overnight. We've, we've just not done that yet. Like, Leo's not two yet. So this was the first time they were going to stay, this time with Nina and Pawpaw, and they were going to stay overnight, and we had to talk our daughter through it. She's four. She can comprehend. Leo would have looked at us like, you're what? Like, I don't know. So we didn't coach him, but we coached her. And so for multiple days, we said, hey, listen, mommy and daddy will put you to bed on Sunday night, but when you wake up on Monday, like, we won't be there, but Nina and Pawpaw will be, and they're going to take you to school and pick you up, and then you're going to stay there Monday night, and you're going to stay there Tuesday night, but on Wednesday, mommy and daddy are going to come home, and she's like, okay, on Wednesday, so she kept, she kept asking that. Finally, the time comes, and we leave, and when we get home, my mother-in-law, who my daughter calls Nina, said, uh, she goes, hey, uh, Ainsley asked every single day what day it was. What day is today? Monday. Okay, mommy and daddy said they'd be back on Wednesday. Okay. Tuesday. What day is it? It's Tuesday. She knows. If she knew yesterday's Monday. She knows, but she's asking. It's Tuesday. Okay, mommy and daddy said they'd be home on Tuesday. Okay, it's, or I mean on Wednesday. It's Wednesday. What day is it? It's Wednesday. Yep, mommy and daddy coming home today. Absolutely. Now, here is the only problem. We told her we would be home as soon as she got done with school. We were driving on our way back. We're in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky. And all of a sudden, my tire light shows up on our minivan. And I have to pull over, get out at the gas station. Our tire, I can hear it going, that's never a good sound from your car, just in case you're wondering. I'm not a car buff, but I do know that. And so we were, we sit there, we fill it back up. I call this tire shop. When I say middle of nowhere, I really do mean like mostly middle of nowhere in Kentucky. 
And so we get a hold of this tire shop that's just a little bit away. So we drive with our tire deflating as we go. And Hannah goes, how long do you think this is going to take? And I'm like, I have no idea. And the best part of this story takes place next. We get to this tire shop after telling them we were coming. We walk up to the door and inside there I can hear like six guys talking really loud and laughing. We open the door and walk in, it's silence, right? Just silence and everyone just kind of watches us. I'm like, well, clearly we are outsiders, you know? I walked into this, clearly we are, I guess, not from this town and they know it. And so we, we walk in, it's dead silence and the guy behind the counter is like, and how can we help you? And I was like, I just, I think I just talked to you on the phone. <laughs> Pretty sure. And uh, he's like, oh, you got the tire. I'm like, yes, I do. He's like, okay, well, I got a few cars in front of you, so it'll be a minute. And, you know, at that point, because it had been silence, I'm not going to lie, I was like kind of intimidated to ask, what does a minute mean to you? <laughs> like, you know, because we all have a different definition of a minute. But he said, you know, it's going to be a minute. And I go, okay, all right, sounds good. So Hannah and I go back in their waiting room. We sit down. And for the rest of the time we're there, not lying. Like I said, it was, it was a loud environment when we were opening that door. Silence in the building. We were there about an hour and a little bit over. And finally, the guy walks back out and he goes, all right, we got your car done. It's all good to go. And I'm like, oh, thank you. And they just had to patch the tire. We were on our way. As the door is shutting, we hear, like all the noise comes back. All the noise comes back. But that set us back about an hour and a half, which means we didn't get back to pick up my daughter till about 5.30, 6 o'clock. So at that point, she's going, it's Wednesday. They said after school, they're not here. Right, because our word matters to our little girl, right? It matters to her. Now, I will report to you that we did get there and we saw her and she initially goes, oh, mommy, daddy, and she gives us a hug, and then she just goes back to playing. Like, she did not miss us at all. But it was one of those deals where it clicked in my mind how much, again, our words matter, how much our faithfulness to what we say matters. If we say we're going to do something, we need to do it. If we say we're going to follow through on something, obviously there's circumstances that can play into it, but our hope and our goal is that we're going to meet what we've said we're going to do. Does that make sense to everybody in the room that our words really do matter? And so we're going to continue today in the second week of our series, Faithful, as we continue to look at God's promise to Abraham and how God keeps his word to Abraham before Jesus comes thousands of years later. Before we jump in, let's go ahead and let's pray together. Father, I just thank you for who you are. God, I thank you for being faithful. I thank you for being good. Father, I pray that right now in these moments that we share, Lord, that you'd be honored and you'd be glorified. Father, I pray that there would be nothing, Lord, that would separate us from your love, as your word says, but we would have the awareness to recognize it. Lord, I pray that right now every word that I speak is the one you want spoken, the ones you don't want spoken. Omit those from my vocabulary today. Lord, I pray that today would be a day that honors and glorifies you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. All right, if, let's jump in. If you weren't with us last week, we started week one of our series talking about Adam and Eve and the sin that happened there that led us to the world that we have today. If you're not familiar, Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden with God. There was no sin. There was no problems. There was no disease. The serpent comes up. God had told them and said, hey, you can eat from any tree except for one tree. That tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent comes to them and says, did he really say that? That you couldn't eat from that tree? That fruit looks pretty good. Here, take a bite. Eve takes a bite, gives it to Adam. 
And at that point, sin enters the equation, and now we're separated from God in a way that we weren't before. So God leads them out of the garden, and he guards the tree of life with a flaming sword that turns each way to keep people from getting to it. And if you were with us last week, I told you, I used to read that passage of scripture about him driving them out of the garden, keeping them from the tree of life as like an act of anger or maybe an act of discipline or an act of frustration. And I believe that God was going to discipline his children. That's something he does. But I believe that particular act was an act of love. He said to them in that moment, hey, we, the, the man now knows good and evil. He's become like one of us. Let's get him out of here. Let's guard the tree of life, lest he reach out, grab of the tree, and eat it. Meaning, forever he exists in a sinful state. Meaning, forever he exists in a way that God didn't create him to exist. And God's desire and his heart and his path was for redemption, for reconciliation, for salvation. And if we exist forever in a sinful state, we never get to return to the form that God wanted us to be in. So he says, I'm going to guard that. So that this life now becomes temporary, and I'm going to create a path to the next life where they'll be as they should be. And something that I think is really, really powerful for us to take note of today, too, is this. This side of heaven, God loves us just as we are, not as we should be. Because no matter how hard we try, we will never, ever, ever be as we should be. But there's a moment coming someday on the other side of this life where we will be as we should be. So that's why he did that there. Fast forward a couple thousand years. Reconciliation is still on the heart and the mind of God. So let me recap the story of Abraham and Sarah at that point. It says this in Genesis 12, 1 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. And I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham begins to walk. They walk and they walk and they walk in the confidence that God is going to do what he said that he's going to do. And they do this with confidence and with faith, right? Because he said, go to the land that I will show you, not the land that I have shown you. Go to the land that I will show you. So obediently they walk. But Abraham and Sarah's focus at this point is more on themselves and how this promise is going to impact them than how the promise is going to affect the earth. Remember, here's the promise again. Let's read it. Genesis 12, 2 and 3. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. He's talking to Abraham. And I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And then others enter the equation. And I'm going to bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That blessing that Jesus is ta- I mean, that God is talking about here is Jesus the Son of God, Jesus came through Abraham's line. That blessing is salvation. But that promise is not just to Abraham. That promise is to the earth. And I'm going to bless the earth through you. It's a promise to Abraham that it's going to happen through his line, but it's a promise to the earth that everyone's going to be blessed by Jesus. So Abraham hears this command. He begins to walk, like I said, obediently. They had not seen the land yet. They begin to go. And obedience is paramount as we look at the continuation of this story today. And I believe that obedience is paramount in our life as a whole. Our goal is not to be perfect. Our goal is obedience. Okay, Our goal is obedience, not perfection. No matter how hard you try, 
no matter how hard you work, you will not be perfect. There is only one who is perfect, that is God. But our goal is to learn his voice, to hear his voice, and to respond to it. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, I know them, and they follow me. They listen to me. They do what I ask them to do. So our goal is obedience. And Abraham and Sarah are obedient to God's leading and direction. They hear the call from God, and they go. And in order to do this, I think you'd have to really believe that God is faithful. Right? Like God is going to do what he says that he's going to do. And if you're here last week, we talked about this, but along the way, they make mistakes. They doubt, they fear, they fall. Abraham tells people that Sarah is his sister so that the rulers of the land that he's wandering through don't hurt him. She's beautiful. He's like, they're going to want to take her as my wife and they're going to kill me. And so I've got to lie and say that she's my sister. And through doing that, like that causes a lot of problems. And one of the things that I found interesting in that story and in that piece of information was Abraham's obedient to God's leading, but he's not trusting that God's going to preserve his life. He's obedient enough to start walking, but he's not trusting enough to believe that the promise is going to really be fulfilled through him. If God said, I'm going to, prom- I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to bring joy, I'm going to bring a blessing to the earth through you, and your name is going to be great, Abraham doesn't have a son yet, then he's not going to die yet. But he sits there and he goes, oh no, they're going to take Sarah as their wife and they're going to kill me. No, the Lord promised something. He's going to preserve your life. But it speaks again to where their vision was on the promise, right? He was tunnel vision on how this promise affects him, not thinking about the grand scheme of how it's going to affect the earth. Sarah then gives Abraham one of her servants to have a child with as she doubts her ability to have the child that God has promised them. She's like in her 60s when this promise is given. So she's already beyond the age of like being able to bear children. And so for Sarah, because she's so concerned with her end of the promise, she forgets that it's not up to her. It's not up to her to make this promise happen. Again, her job is obedience. God's job is outcome. And that's the same thing for us. But she takes the outcome into her own hands. And through doing that, there's a child born named Ishmael. And that muddies the waters about who the chosen son of Abraham really is and who the chosen line that God chose to bless truly is. And I think if we look at this story, it can be an example to us in one specific way. If it takes a miracle to bring about the outcome or to bring the outcome to fruition, then we can't create that outcome from our own natural abilities. And we have to remind ourselves of that. If God's spoken something to you, if he's given you a dream, if he's given you a calling, and it's something that literally cannot be produced without the blessing or the movement of God, then guess what? Your natural abilities aren't going to make it happen no matter which way you try to turn it, no matter which way you try to circumvent the process. And listen, I've been there like trying to microwave the results of my life, right? I've been there thinking that like I can take this 20-year, 30-year calling from God and make it happen in two years. I've been there. I've thought through that. And I'm here to tell you the truth is if God gives you a calling that can only happen by a miracle, then my efforts can't create a miracle. Like I'm just not that strong. I'm just not that good. I'm just not that able. Anything lasting, anything sustainable, anything that is breathed by God will not be created from our natural ability. But here we are looking at the story of Abraham and Sarah. They're given a promise from God that can only be fulfilled by God And they're trying to create the outcome on their own. If God gives you a calling 
or a promise that's clear that could only come from his hands, let's not try to manifest it from our own. It'll save us all a lot of heartache, a lot of energy, and it'll allow us to see the promise and the faithfulness of God. But throughout their mistakes, God remains faithful. So several years after that promise, Isaac, their son, is born. It says this, Genesis 21, 1 through 7. The Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him Isaac, whom Sarah bore him. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have thought or who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Sarah's kind of old too, but I love that she only points out that Abraham's old. It's like my favorite thing. Every time I read that, I just still think it's cold, man. It is not right. So the Lord is faithful, right? The Lord is faithful. We read this story. The Lord is faithful. The thing they tried to create that God promised early on, he brings to fruition. He brings to fruition now the beginning of the promise. For Abraham and Sarah, they might actually think this is just the fulfillment of the promise, right? We have our son. Our line is going to be big. Woo, it's done. Stress is over. For God, the promise extends to the earth, to the earth. Again, we can't be tunnel visioned with our life. We can't be tunnel visioned with our situations. We can't be tunnel visioned with what God has promised to us. He's saying, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth through you. They have this child. I imagine a party ensued like it should, but they should never, ever, ever think, and we shouldn't either. The beginning of the promise is the end of the promise. Or the beginning of the work God is doing in us is the completion of it. What God starts, he will bring to completion. But here we are at the very beginning of this story. And even though they doubted, even though they feared, even though they wavered, even though they failed, God never wavers in his commitment to them. And I think it's so powerful. And he'll never waver in his commitment to you either. He is faithful. What he's spoken will come to pass because he's faithful. He really is faithful. However, the story takes a turn in a direction that I don't think Abraham and Sarah would have ever expected it take. They have their son, and we're not sure how long Isaac's been alive at this point if the story continues, but when you've waited decades for a child and you have that child at 100 years old, there's probably not an amount of time that feels like you've had a good amount of time with your child. You've been waiting and waiting and waiting. I don't think there's an amount of time that makes you go, you know what, we've really had this child a long time, right? Like they've waited for this, they've hoped for this. So it doesn't probably feel like they've had their child long enough and it says this, Genesis 22, one through 19. We're gonna read a lot here. After these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. After these things, God tested Abraham. God is testing Abraham's obedience, Abraham's faith, 
Abraham's commitment. Imagine the question that God's asking right here is, do you love your son more than you love me? Do you love that child that I gave you more than you love me? Do you trust me, Abraham? Do you love what my hand has provided more than the heart that created it? Do you love what I've given you more than the one who has given it to you? Where is your focus? Where is your attention? Where's your desire? Where's your commitment? Where's your faith, Abraham? Take your son Isaac, who I've given to you, up to the mountain that I'm going to show you. And imagine those words rang in the back of his ears because he'd already been faithful once, right? God said, go to the land I'll show you. Go to the mountain that I'm going to show you. Okay, I know how to do this part. And I'll start walking and, and sacrifice your son there. What? And I believe this test has taken place because even though God has already provided Isaac to Abraham, the path to get there for Abraham and Sarah was bumpy. We talked about the mistakes. We talked about the ways they doubted, the ways they feared. And again, there's nothing wrong with having some of those emotions that lead us to going, man, that's been a long time, you know? I think it was 25 years in between the original promise and the fulfillment of Isaac. It was 24 years in between the original promise and God coming back to them and saying, it'll happen next year. They waited a long time. They doubted, they feared, they wavered, they made mistakes. And now God is testing them. They have their child. He's saying to Abraham, do you love me? Do you trust me? And he's doing this so that his faith would be solidified. So that his faith would be solidified, so it would be cemented. So we read on, verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. I imagine he rose early because there's no way he could sleep the night before. Right? No way. God just told me to sacrifice the son that he gave me. There's no way he got a good night of sleep that night. He saddles his donkey, takes two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Abraham and Isaac and the men, they've traveled two days to reach the place of the sacrifice. And that journey must have been gut-wrenching. That's a long journey takes two days to get there. But that journey, while it's gut-wrenching, is also full of steps of obedience. All along the way, Abraham's likely thinking about what he's about to do, right? All along the way, Abraham's looking for opportunities, or there are opportunities for Abraham to turn back. All along the way, there's opportunities for Abraham to be disobedient, but he puts one foot in front of the other, and he does the thing that God asked him to do. The most difficult thing that any of us could ever imagine doing. I read this story as a father and it just shatters my heart in so many ways because I looked at my daughter and at my son when they were born. I remember holding them, looking at them and saying, there is no way that I would ever give you up for anything. And each time I thought that, I remember seeing John 3, 16 just enter my mind. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And I remember that word gave just finally clicked. For the first time, it wasn't that he sent his son. It wasn't that he just told him you gotta go do something, but he gave over his son as an offering, as a sacrifice for the propitiation of our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins. And so Abraham, 
He models obedience here in a big way, step by step as he continues the journey. Verse five, it says, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and we'll come to you again. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand or he took in it, his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. There's a statement of faith here that I'm not sure if it's intentional or not. When Abraham says, God's gonna provide that. If you read a bunch of different scholars and a bunch of different historians, there's a split thought on that. He's either saying, no, he, he trusts that God is gonna provide it or it's actually a remark to keep Isaac calm. Hey, don't, don't worry, God will provide. So they continue on. They continue on. And when they come to the place which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid wood on laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand. He took the knife to slaughter his son. And as I read that passage again, it's just, it's a heart-wrenching thought, right? Here he is, two days journey up the mountain. He's got the son that he's prayed for, the son that he's waited for, the son that was promised to him. And God says, give him back. You trust me, give him back. And Abraham pulls out the knife. And in that moment, he's laying his own flesh down, right? And he's assuming the ultimate obedience as he prepares to sacrifice his son. Verse 11, though, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And I imagine he's like, oh, okay, knife drop, okay. Here I am. What, what, what else is in store? We got something else? He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know, for now I know, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. And as it's said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. He is our provider. Imagine Abraham's emotions in that moment is relief. Right? Whoa. Isaac's emotions in that moment were like, Dad, were you really going to do that to me? <laughs> I, I don't know, son. Abraham's like, I'm just glad that, that, that he provided that ramp. You're glad, you know. Imagine how I feel. You told me we we're just going on a little trip. But in a moment for Abraham and for Isaac, because God's going to make the same promise to Isaac that he made to Abraham. He's going to continue that line through him. He's going to bless it. For both of them, they got to see the faithfulness of God. 
for both of them in a moment, something that Isaac would be able to remember for the rest of his life, is that God does provide. Again, the promise wasn't just to Abraham and Sarah. The promise was to the world, to the generations after Abraham. So Isaac's up on that altar, the ram, the Lord calls out, the angel of the Lord calls out, he speaks, don't lay a hand on him. And in a moment, Isaac gets to experience the faithfulness of the Lord too. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're up against, the Lord will provide. The story continues on, verse 15, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And I imagine when he calls the second time, Abraham's a little anxious, right? Like, oh no, are we gonna have another conversation? but it's good. And he says, by myself, I've sworn declares the Lord because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will multiply your offspring as the stars in heaven and as the sand on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. They arose, went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible. There's a few things to pay attention to in this story. One, God's intention was actually never for Isaac to be sacrificed. And this is why perspective matters again. On the promise that Abraham was given, the promise that it was going to come through Isaac, the promise that that was the line, God's intention and God's goal that day was never to sacrifice Isaac. In fact, I know we're playing Monday morning quarterback here. We know the end of the story. But the reality is Isaac was actually never in any real danger that day. God was never gonna make that whole thing go through. Why? The willingness to sacrifice proved the point that it needed to have. It proved the point. Abraham trusts God. Abraham is obedient to God. Nothing more would have been accomplished by actually sacrificing Isaac. Isaac's death wouldn't have brought redemption to anything. He isn't a sinless sacrifice. His death wouldn't have brought redemption to anything. There'd be no generational blessing that would come from it. And remember again, God's promise to the earth hinged on Abraham's line continuing through Isaac. So whether or not Abraham had the large picture perspective at this point or not, the reality is again, Isaac was never going to die because the hope of the world, Jesus, was coming through his line. And again, that's why perspective matters. When Abraham and Sarah are tunnel visioned on their piece of the promise, they're missing the faithfulness of God that's going to be accomplished by favor and protection. And that's why our perspective matters greatly. As we close, something I found significant in the story is the repeated use of the phrase to Abraham, your son, your only son. God blesses Abraham and affirms his faith because he's not withheld his most prized possession or his blessing, his son, his only son. He keeps saying that, right? You haven't withheld your son from me, your only son from me. You haven't withheld your, your only son from me. The commitment from Abraham to God is reminiscent of God's commitment to the world. 
It's one thing for an imperfect person to go through great lengths to try to prove his commitment to a perfect God. It's another thing for a perfect God to go to great lengths to prove his commitment and love to a group of imperfect people. God doesn't have to prove anything to us about how good he is. God doesn't have to prove anything to us about his faithfulness to us. God doesn't have to prove anything about how worthy he is of praise. Yet he goes through with every little thing that he said that he would do. That's what God does. And so in the same way that Abraham did not withhold his son, his only son, God doesn't withhold his either. Through the line of Abraham comes Isaac, Abraham's only son. Abraham offers Isaac to God and God preserves Isaac's life because that's the pathway for him to bring salvation to the world. Through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, thousands of years later, Jesus comes to earth, born as a baby, the son of God, God's only son, lives a blameless life. But the purpose for his life on earth was to bring redemption to humanity, to be the blessing to the world. And that blessing is salvation. Salvation only comes through Jesus' death on the cross. And so in the same way that Abraham doesn't withhold his only son, God does the exact same thing. While God doesn't require Isaac's life as a sacrifice, he does of Jesus's. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for something he never did, but to save the world that God created. And so God never asked Abraham to do something he wasn't willing to do himself. Let that sink in for a second. God didn't ask Abraham to do something he wasn't willing to do. The most difficult task that any of us could imagine, the Lord did. The Lord understood the pain. The Lord understood the weight. He understood the severity of it. And he was faithful to Abraham. Abraham gives, or he, God gave Abraham Isaac. He preserves Isaac's life. After thousands of years, the fulfillment of the promise, Jesus comes to fruition. God is faithful, no matter the cost, no matter the ask. God is faithful and God will provide. What he started, he will complete. What he's spoken will come to pass. Our job is not to create the outcome. Our job in that promise is obedience. His job is outcome. Let's pray together.